When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, guys. I'm Amy Wright. Thanks for listening to the Insights Podcast by Diddy TV. Today, I talk one-on-one with Charlie Starr, lead singer of acclaimed American rock band Blackberry Smoke whose highly anticipated new album, You Hear Georgia, will be released just a month from now, an album which marks their 20th anniversary as a group. For the record, the band enlisted producer Dave Cobb, a fellow Georgian, to pay homage to the band's deep respect for their roots, thus the name of the album. Whether he's performing to a crowd of thousands or conversing with one person on a video call, Charlie is a truly delightful, thoughtful, and wise individual. I had a great time talking to him, and I'm happy to share that experience with you right now on Insights. Hey, Charlie, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for stopping by, virtually, oh, that is. Yeah, this is a bit different than the last time we were there. I'm in my house. Now, are you in Atlanta? Yeah, I'm in Atlanta. Now, you, you grew up, actually, in Alabama, right? Was it Lynette? Yeah, that's exactly right, about 85 miles southwest of Atlanta. So you were on that sort of Alabama-Georgia border. And um, did your parents play music? My dad uh, uh, did and still does. Plays bluegrass guitar and and uh, singing. And uh, that's all he likes. He's uh, a bluegrass snob. <laughs> we love bluegrass here at, here at Diddy. Did you grow up playing bluegrass at all with him? I did. Yeah, still do. Um, I, when I go visit, I always take a guitar and we always wind up playing and singing. Well, how does bluegrass sort of, how does it filter into any of your music that you play today? Does that, is that sensibility still there? I think it does. Um, especially with vocal harmonies, um, and a lot with, uh, the way the music is structured, you know, um, we're not a prog rock band, so we kind of adhere to the first chorus solo maybe a bridge uh solo chorus out right don't bore us get to the chorus per that's someday, right right <laughs> that's right i think i think those are my favorite songs too so when you were a kid did you know you were good at guitar when did that happen um i don't know if i uh right off well i would uh always pick up his my dad's guitar and i'm constantly playing it you know and driving him crazy and uh, so he bought me my own. And uh, I think I was uh, I understood what I wanted it to do. And, and I slowly found out uh, how to make that happen. And I didn't have lofty goals at first. Um, I just wanted to do what he did, which was play songs and sing them. And, uh, and then later I got an electric guitar and I was I found myself surrounded by my buddies who loved Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Van Halen. And I was like, oh, now I want to do that. Um, I can, I got, I got Blue Moon of Kentucky down, but now it's time for eruption.
So, but then I, I wasn't any good at baseball or football or any of that. And uh, none of my friends were as good as I was on the guitar. So I thought, well, I can do this. Kind of reminds me of a friend of mine who's a, who's a chef. And I asked him how he became a chef. He said, well, because I was the, uh, the son of a single mom. And at 12 years old, I would come home from school and all my friends told me I made the best burger ever. And he goes, and I thought I was good at cooking. <laughs> so, oh, perfect. Yeah. You know, same thing. So, uh, yeah. so, some, some things are like that. So when you were in high school, were you in a band? Did you form a band in high school? I did. Um, in junior high, actually, it was the first one. Uh, and then in high school, um, our problem was nobody had guts enough to sing. So we were instrumental only. And uh, we played the hits of the day with no vocals. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard, you know, For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica with no vocals, but it's pretty boring. Um, so, <laughs> but we would we would play our, our buddies birthday parties and and, uh, you know, that was our first gigs. And uh, we, you know, I think we got busted at a birthday party once and uh, we all went to jail and it was not really like actual arrested jail. It was the local sheriff's department in LaGrange, Georgia, trying to teach us a lesson like, oh, yeah, we're going to keep you in here and call all your parents one at a time. And they did. Of course. And uh, yeah, it was and we, and we thought that was wild. We're like, oh, man, we're earning our stripes. Look at we're this. Rockers we've already, now. We've already <laughs> we've already gone and spent the night in jail. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you think, hey, I can sing. I'm going to try singing a song in front of people. Well, we had a. Um, when I was a little older, probably 19 or so, um, I was in a band that had a singer and we were actually playing in bars um, in the in my hometown and the next couple of towns around VFWs and things. And um, our singer was crazy and he quit um, and he quit on a Friday and we had a gig on Friday and Saturday night. And um, I had been singing with him. I was singing a lot of background vocals and um, anyway, uh, to keep the gig and make 50 bucks. My drummer at the time, who was sort of my mentor, he was like, you're going to do it. Get up there. You, you can sing these songs. I know you can do it. Just do it. And uh, I was thrown into the fire and I've been in it ever since. Were you writing music at the time already or was that later? I was writing some pretty horrible songs um, <laughs> that I was ashamed to play for anybody yet, you know, and uh but that came much later, really, and probably in my mid-20s, mid to late 20s. So when you started writing music and songs you actually like and that were keepers, what was kind of what was the shift there? Was it just getting out and having more experiences so that you had more to write about or what changed? Yeah, I think it was life. I think uh, living a few more years and, and having more to write about. Um, but I was spending some time and I had moved to Atlanta by that point. Um, and I was playing with I, who I, uh, some guys that I consider to be really good songwriters in three different band situations. And uh, I think I was kind of learning from them through osmosis, sort of. It was like a, um, I, I, that's the only way I could describe it. I, I, would, I was really enamored with their craft and what they did. And uh, I wanted to do it I, desperately. I thought I, I want to create, you know, those the, those images and those moods in song. Yeah, I know that uh, when a lot of times when people start writing music, you know, it, maybe it's because you you're emulating a, a band that you're that's a favorite band or someone who writes lyrics that you you really admire. 
Um, but then eventually it kind of morphs into your own thing. And, yeah. um, you know, and you, you guys have some amazing lyrics. I read somewhere, I read somewhere that you also are into cars. I just have to take a little side detour before I get back. Um, yeah. Well, I, I worked in a body shop. Um, I don't know if you noticed my dog is in the chat back there. Um, hey, you know, what, what's his, his or her name? His name is Digsby. He's a, he's a little couch dog. He loves it. <laughs> um, oh, hey, no. hey, dogs are welcome at Diddy. <laughs> oh, good. Um, now, my dad also, that was his living, was he was a body and paint guy. And um, so he had a shop there at home that he did work on the side. And um, so around the time I was really, you know, getting uh, interested in guitar in earnest, I was starting to help him in the shop. So it, the two kind of went hand in hand. But uh, he, that was important to him uh, when I was a teenager. You know, he said, well, you got to have a you, you got to have a trade, you know, um, you got to be able to pay bills and you're not doing that playing on the on the weekends at the BFW. So and I, I, I thought I was making pretty good money. I was, you know, apprenticing and learning in a body shop. And I was, you know, compared to some of my friends who were flipping burgers. Um, but I think that uh, I don't know. It's a create your working on cars. Uh, it can be a creative outlet too, especially paint work. Cause you're kind of like the, the crazy professor in there, you know, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just crazy. Were you ever into car racing or was your dad into car racing? Just no, you know, not really. We just fixed them when people wrecked them. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have any car, you know, that you wanted, what, what car would you have? Well, I've always been a Chevelle lover. And uh, when I graduated high school, I bought a 1967 Chevelle. It was a 350 car and, and I loved it so much. I was so proud of it. Just the, just the way an old car smells when you get in. It's kind of like an old guitar. I got a real affinity for both of those things. And just the way the doors close, they're so solid. And, you know, uh, it's just American muscle, you know. And uh, I sold that car. I, I was married right out of high school and my wife at the time decided we did not need that car. And uh, if I could do any, if I have one regret in my life, it's selling that damn car. I'd love to go back and keep it. Well, maybe you can get another one. You know, yeah. I, I think my, my first car was a Buick Skylark 1971 model. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm, you know what I'm, you know what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah. I totally do. I, I could haul around about eight people in that car. That's right. And you could yeah. fix anything that was wrong under the hood. There was, there's, you, you can look at an engine from that era and understand this is this, this is this, this is this, there's a fuel pump. I got it. Not so much anymore. No. And to be clear, even then you could fix everything underneath the hood of the car. Right. <laughs> I could not fix that. Well. <laughs> Someone could. <laughs> yeah. I knew, I knew how to change the oil though, which is well, even good. hard on some of the newer cars. And, right. uh, and I knew how to change a tire. My dad made sure that I learned how to change my own tire he was trying to teach his daughter a few things like that. And yeah. so I, I did, I did learn, but now like to your point, the cars, you look in the, under the hood and everything is run by computers. It's crazy. That's right. And there's no room under there. It used to be, I could crawl under the hood with the engine and be in there with it, you know, as one. Sure. Not anymore. No, not anymore. So, uh, so now you're in Atlanta, let's go back and you're in Atlanta. So when did you actually form Blackberry Smoke? And how did that sort of come together? Well, we were all in different bands. Um, all the guys 
uh, in Blackberry Smoke. And um, we, we had a lot of mutual friends. Um, and the rock and roll scene in Atlanta seemed to be bigger than um, to me, maybe, maybe it's, maybe I'm, all this is like old man stuff now. I'm just like, used to be, you could, you know, <laughs> but, but uh, we all, you know, hung out at that. We played the same clubs. We hung out at the same after hours bars and um, you just start to know each other, you know, and, uh, and bands would form and play a few gigs and fall apart and that kind of thing. And um, I was in a, I was in a situation with the, one of those songwriter guys I was talking about. And uh, one night he said, man, I got, uh, he decided to fire his whole band except me, which was, uh, was odd. And I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, I know a rhythm section. They're brothers. Uh, he said, I played in a band with them years ago. Their names are Britt and Richard Turner. Let's go meet them. So we went that night and we met them and we drank beer and, and uh, you know, hung around. And so it was decided on his part that they would become the rhythm section of his band with me as guitar player. We did that. We made a record uh, for Universal. And then we broke up about a year later. And I said, um, well, we didn't actually break up. We fired that guy from his own band. And, uh, <laughs> and I, it was such drama, such drama. That's a but good I, band story, by the way. Yeah. We were like the rhythm section for him, you know myself, Britt and Richard, guitar, bass and drums. There was a thing, there was a, a special thing that happened and it still does when we played the three of us together. So we said goodbye to him and, and um, I said, I've got some songs that I've written. They're different than his, but um, you want to try them? And they said, yeah. So we started to play and it was pretty apparent immediately we needed another guitar player because we want to be at least two guitars and another high harmony voice. Cause I was doing that with the other guys band. So, um, so I called my old buddy, Paul Jackson and, uh, from down in LaGrange, Georgia, and he came up to Atlanta and there was Blackberry Smoke. You, you kind of describe a bit of a magic from the get go with that, when that group formed, what was it like to put out your first album and what was that experience like? Was it amalgamation of songs that you had been writing for years or was it something that was more recent and you just put it together? Um, it was all pretty recent because I had just really started to write, songs that I was um, comfortable playing for people. You know, it was all, it was all for me anyway, it was very new. Um, and being the lead singer of an all original band, you know, no, uh, which we did still have to go. We would go play gigs and we had to play a, a lot of covers to fill up the amount of time that you need to play to get paid, you know, at a bar. And, uh, but, it, you know, we put in our 10,000 hours that way playing, you know, dive bars and we bought a used van and uh, making our first album. That was the last thing on my mind. I thought, well, we're just learning how to do this, you know, um, together, the four of us. And uh, Jesse Dupree, he's in a band called Jackal from Atlanta. He, we made a demo. We made a two song demo at a friend's studio and somehow he heard it. And uh, there was a song on it called Sanctified Woman. It was the first song I wrote for Blackberry Smoke. And he said, I want to, I want to uh, re-record that song with you because this recording sucks. <laughs> and I said, Oh, okay. And I, so we did. And I had written two more. So we recorded four songs and he said, Hey, you got about six more of those. And I said, no, <laughs> I mean, you're getting, you're getting them as they occur to me, you know? So he said, well, I want you to write as many as you can in these next couple of weeks. 
and let's make a, a full-fledged album. And I was blown away. We were all like, oh, wow, we're making a record in a real studio, you know, and he's our producer. Was that stressful, um, though, to have to write no, four to six more songs? No, it, it was a challenge. And it was because there, there was no pressure. There's nothing writing on it, you know. It was just a new venture for us. And so I wrote as many as I could. And then, um, and then we fleshed it out with a couple of covers. Um, cause I kind of reached a point. I was like, I don't have any more. There's no more songs inside here. I don't know what to, you know, and, and uh, he made a point to tell me at that, that time. I remember when we finished it all up, we made the record and he said, are you prepared to write, you know, 15 or 20 songs a year to, cause you got to keep doing this. And that ter- that terrified me. I was like, Oh no, that sounds really difficult. Um, but it hasn't been, I mean, you know, when you, when you get into a, uh, a rhythm, I guess, and um, find something, uh, a, th- a thing to do that's comfortable to you. It just happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's like we've never worked with a major label that um, to where I had a guy, you know, hanging over my shoulder going, come on, buddy, come on, let's write these songs. So uh, I guess I'm fortunate in that regard, but that was the beginning. Yeah. So after you put out your first album, did you immediately go on tour or? Yes. And Even was that before, the first time you'd ever really been on tour or first time ever um, in the previous band. That was the first time I had ever been out of the South, um, went to New York City, which was great. Um, but when we formed Blackberry Smoke and we we started making that first album, you know, right in that time, Jesse said, OK, we're going on tour for a month. You guys come with us and support us, be our opening band. And that's when we bought a van and a trailer to put our gear in. And um, we did it. And it was right then. And that was 2001. It was like, I guess we got to quit our day jobs because we can't just take off for a month. I mean, who's going to let you do that? Yeah. (laughs) So we did. We all decided, you know, we all threw our hat in and said, I'm doing it. We're all this is dedication time. And uh, that taught us how to tour and how to live on the road. That first tour. So that's a major turning point. Most people don't realize in any career, music being this being the same way, you, you have to make a choice at some point that I'm yeah. doing this as, as my career. And to your point of having to produce 20 songs per year or whatever that number is, it's hard to do if you're doing lots of other things. But if you're dedicating every day to music, then it's going to, you know, you're going to have a lot more time for that. But that has had to be a hard decision for everybody, I would think. I, I maybe so um, myself, I was being really wild at that time. And um, I was newly single and was just throwing down. So I was like, hell yes, let's go. You know? And um, I think a couple of guys were actually quit, you know, pretty good paying jobs and, you know, like uh, maybe, maybe things that they had started to get involved with that showed way more potential than jumping in a van with three dudes and eating bologna sandwiches for, you know, however many years um but i mean I that sounds like a lot of fun so yeah, yeah. there's that part of it, it and you're in great, your 20s right you're in your 20s at the time yeah i was 26 yeah so that's got to be a really fun time to be touring and, it was and great newly single <laughs> we, we were we were such a party band then i mean it was all about just it was it was wild it was fun and that's what we had come from we basically took you know the bar scene that we had been a part of in Atlanta and the surrounding area, we just brought that with us. 
It was the first time we ever went up into the really cold. We went to Minnesota and Wisconsin and the upper peninsula of Michigan. And it was, it was February. It was freezing. And, uh, oh, I mean, it was great, though. Um, so many so many layers of it, though. I remember getting there, no pun intended. I didn't have enough clothing. I was like, I've never felt 15 below zero before. That sounds like a science project to me. I don't know. You know. <laughs> When I, when I look at bands tours, a lot of times I think, you know, if I were in a band, I would plan in the summer to be maybe on the West Coast or Florida. Know, up in New England or something, someplace that's not in, in the deep South where it's 102 degrees and humid, but um, you probably can't always do that per your story. You know, you, you have right. to go to Minnesota when it's January sometimes. Well, that was Jesse's point then. I remember asking him at one point, I was like, why do you come up here into this this frozen tundra, you know, he's like, cause nobody else will. So we're the only band in town. <laughs> right. No competition at that point. That's right. Yeah. And, and you guys, of course you tour, you tour a lot and it, it seems like you enjoy touring. What has the past year been a little bit like for you guys? You know, cause everyone's been kind of shut down. It's been shut down. Um, it's been strange. I, I think we all loved it though. I think it was time for a break cause this is 20 years for us this year. Um, so, and I don't know that any of us would have ever said, all right, let's stop and take a, a year off. You know, that never, no, no, none of us would have had the guts to say that, you know, <laughs> to each other. So that, you know, forced um, quarantine was, I think it was pretty perfect because we all got to spend so much time with our wives and kids and, and, um, you know, I grew a garden and, uh, became a school teacher. <laughs> yeah, it was, I wouldn't, I, I, it was great. I think it was needed. Cause you have two kids, but one of them is, is a little like four or five years old or something in that he, range. Or? Yeah. He's seven, but oh, so, he's first, seven now. Okay. so first grade this year. And, uh, I mean, I, I, my wife and I both, I think, um, developed a, we already appreciated teachers. Of course we do. But I think, I think I just, um, realized uh, even more so that, wow, uh, teachers are underpaid. Yeah, I think a lot of parents feel a lot more appreciation for teachers after this past year. Yeah, and underappreciated. Yeah, well, it had to be a blessing, like you said, though. Sometimes when you're forced to just be at home like that and take a deep breath, then you can appreciate all those things. Yeah, it's, it, it, I think it was uh, a blessing in disguise. So let's talk you here, Georgia. This album is going to be out May 28th. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to say, everyone here at Diddy is very excited for this album. Can't wait to hear the whole thing. Of course, we love all your other music, so we know we're going to love this. Are these songs that you wrote over the past year, or when did you start making this album? Um, a little of both. I had some songs written already, and, um, uh, and we had already planned to go in the studio and start making the record in March with with Dave Cobb um, early March. And of course that didn't happen because I think March the 12th, we all came home from the road and that was it. And uh, he and I kept in contact because uh, it was, you know, we were, everyone was in limbo and it was like, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, and uh, when it got close to the end of May, um, he said, you know, we have a huge, RCA is huge. Um, 
we can all, you know, keep our masks on and stay six feet away from each other. And we'll be in the huge tracking room. We don't have to hug or kiss or even high five. Let's just go make a record. Uh, by that time, though, we had 10 days um, within in his schedule. He said, I have I have 10 days. I have five days to track and five days to mix. Do you think we can make a record in that amount of time? And I said, I think we can. And if we don't, you know, we don't, you know, but we'll at least get a, a good start. And um, I'm sorry, um, your, to answer your question, um, I had some songs written, but then during the quarantine experience, wrote a bunch more with different friends, um, you know, virtually and yeah. So on the album, you have some guests. Tell me who the guests were and why you brought them in specifically. Well, Jamie Johnson, he was the first guest that was really scheduled. We just wanted to revisit the collaboration that we made back in 2009 or so. Uh, we recorded Yesterday's Wine with him and with George Jones. And uh, he and I were talking and he said, well, we should do something like that again. That was, that was nice. You know, it was special. And so we did. So we actually recorded that song first. He came in and um, uh, the song is called Lonesome for a Living. And it's a tribute to George, really. It's a hats off to George Jones, um, that song. And then, and then the second guest was Warren Haynes. And he and I actually wrote that song. It's called All Rise Again. Warren and I actually wrote that over the telephone. Um, he's a night owl, and we were we happened to be on the phone one night, really late, talking about guitars and and the blues and all the things that we love. And and uh, I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I've been writing songs like crazy because I can't leave home." You know, and I said, "I have too." And um, he said, "Let's write one together." I said, "Oh, that would be I'd be honored." You know, and so we wrote that song, and. Uh, I said, hey, we're actually going to go into the studio with Dave Cobb at the end of May. Do you want to come and play on it? And he said, I would love to. Can I sing on it, too? I said, I would love, love for you to sing on it. So just that was it was just kind of a hate to say organic because that word's overused, but it is pretty organic. Well, and the Black Bettys did some background vocals on the album as well. Yes, they did on our last record, too. And they are just the greatest. They're so musical. I don't even have to explain what they should do. They're, they are there before I am. And uh, uh, um, they're a lot younger than I am, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, this is a funny, uh, something I experienced. They came in when we went down to Capricorn and Macon and recorded a bunch of those Capricorn record songs. And Jimmy Hall from Wet Willie came. And we recorded two Wet Willie songs and they sang with Jimmy. And I don't think they really knew who uh, Wet Willie was. Maybe if they heard, you know, a song, but I, I don't know if they were aware uh, of Wet Willie. And when when Jimmy opened his mouth to sing and he's a he's a powerhouse, still is, their eyes just, you know, they were taken aback. And then when they started to sing, he was taken aback. So it was just a, the most beautiful, like, uh, like the meeting of the generations like um millennials and boomers i don't know <laughs> but <laughs> but the, it was just i was it was so heartwarming to watch i'm like this is just a respect for the craft from both directions like from um the older generation and the younger generation i was glad, glad to be a part of it yeah that's one of those beautiful moments that you have when you're in music and you're jamming or whatever else it is that it's just so communal sometimes. And there's this yeah. 
great mutual respect that, you know, that um, whether you're a professional musician or you're an amateur musician, those are yeah. those really great moments that, that you remember. Um, and so what did Dave Cobb bring to the table? I mean, everyone knows Dave Cobb is amazing, but to your album particularly, what did he sort of add? Um, I think he added a, a looseness. Um, and I'm just talking about the recording process. Um, somehow there's something about his personality that just kind of wipes away the tension. Um, and even knowing that we only had 10 days to get it done, I don't remember one gritted, gritted teeth moment that, and that always comes with making a record, you know? Um, but Dave is completely, uh, uh, a relaxing presence and he has great ideas and, um, you know, there's no click and there's no, you just, especially with a band, which is what we are, you know, um, he's like, no, we're, uh, you know, we always make record. We always play together, but he even, I don't know. He made, he made that even seem more special somehow, but he's in there with you and he's shaking a tambourine and he's excited about the songs and about the sounds. And, uh, one specific thing that he brought in my opinion is I might catch myself if I'm producing the record being a little bit heavy handed about, we can do that better. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. Dave's not, Dave's not like that. He's like that was a passionate take it might not be perfect but don't try to make it perfect because then you're going to make it awful you know what i mean it's got to be and there was one guitar part i remember i played and i thought it was a little sloppy and i said i think i should hit that again and he said no you're not you're not no why why would you do listen to that the it's the it's the human element that we love about rock and roll music not perfection that's such an interesting sort of take on it when you look back at old recordings, a lot of times bands went in, they recorded it live because they only had one take because they paid their $10 or whatever they had to record right. something. And, and that became the iconic recording forever right. and um, that we love. And it had that has that edgy sort of raw feel and not everything's perfect. But I think that's what people really um, their people are really attracted to. And, you know, it makes it makes them draws them in more, I think. I, I loved every second of it. I mean, I wished it could have lasted longer. You know, we ran out of time. We got it done. We got it done exactly what we planned to do, which was in, incredible um, with a, an hour or two to spare. But um, there's one song on the record called Old Enough to Know that's completely live. It's the vocal, the lead vocal is live. The, everything's live. And it, that's a funny thing to, to experience in, in 2021. It's like, wow. No overdubs. Look at that. What done. do you know? <laughs> done. <laughs> and that's the take. One and and I, think it, I think it's the second take that we tried. And um, I think at one point, I, it, I, if anybody, everybody could feel it. It's like, wow, you know, we're a band. We can still do that. That feels great. And if anybody had said, you know what? I think I would have been like, shut up. No, that was it. We're done. We Next song. Well, you guys are one of the best live bands I've ever seen. Are you going to hit the road again this year? Thank you. For, that's <laughs> a great compliment. Um, we are, I am manifesting it into existence. We are going to tour this summer. Well, I can't wait for the tour. Now, when I was doing some research, I have to say, I came across this really interesting little fun fact. And you may know this because you are Charlie Starr, but there is actually a famous baseball star from the early 1900s that played for St. Louis Browns, Pittsburgh Pirates, the Boston Doves, and the Philadelphia Phillies. 
and his name was Charlie Starr. Yeah, that was my granddad. No, he wasn't. Oh, oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> See, I would have believed you. <laughs> <laughs> no, my oldest son sent me that um, that Wikipedia page long ago. And I said, oh, look at there. Well, it, it, it's funny because I'm a fiddle player, but I'm learning guitar because I like to sing and I like to be able to sing and play something at the same time, which you really can't do on the violin. But um, one of the songs I learned was One Horse Town. And so I was like, ah, oh, it's bringing that baseball thing right back in here. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> what is it about? Yeah. You know, I have a, this, this uh, six degrees of separation from baseball that I just can't get rid of. I know. Maybe maybe somewhere in there, there's a subliminal baseball player in you or something. You but, know, my, uh, wife is, my wife is talking about uh, reincarnation yesterday. And uh, I was like, come on. Hey, I don't know. Hey, listen, I think it's there, you know, so not yet, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. You know, sometime in the real distant future. Yeah, way but, on down uh, the line. Way on down the line. But uh, Charlie, it was a pleasure having you on Diddy. And uh, we wish you the best with this new album. You hear Georgia. It's uh, out May 28th. And we wish you the best of it. And uh, come see us in Memphis again. Yes, please have us back. I loved that day that we spent with you. That was so fantastic. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Charlie Starr. Don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.